Okay, turn to Hebrews 5, 1 through 10. And this is going to be <clears throat> our lesson text for our, our sermon this morning. Hebrews 5, 1 through 10. Follow along as I read. Every high priest is selected from among men and is appointed to represent them in matters related to God, to offer gifts and sacrifices for sin. He's able to deal gently with those who are ignorant and are going astray, since he himself is subject to weakness. This is why he has to offer sacrifices for his own sins, as well as for the sins of the people. No one takes this honor upon himself. He must be called by God just as Aaron was. So Christ did not take upon himself the glory of becoming a high priest. But God said to him, you are my son. Today I have become your father. And he says in another place, you are a priest forever in the order of Melchizedek. During the days of Jesus' life on earth, he offered up prayers and petitions with loud cries and tears to the one who could save him from death. And he was heard because of his reverent submission. Although he was a son, he learned obedience from what he suffered and once made perfect. He became the source of eternal salvation for all who obey him and who was designated by God to be high priest in the order of Melchizedek. This is a great lesson on Jesus' earthly life. Uh, we, we saw two weeks ago the living word of God, how that, that word of God is living and active and it penetrates and it discerns and critiques and it makes us open and vulnerable. And we looked at Jesus last week, how that he can sympathize. Remember, we talked about how every one of our weaknesses. The writer continues. And remember, we talked about how that this idea of the book of Hebrews can be Hebrews, hold fast, kind of a tagline for the book of Hebrews. Well, this morning's lesson, we get to add, add a little bit onto that tagline, hold fast because of who Jesus is and what he is doing. We hold fast because of Jesus. Now, I want to start off with looking at the purpose of the old priesthood and the parallel and the contrast he's going to start with. And we could have a whole lesson just on this, because with the purpose of the priesthood, it is representational, it is presentational, sacrificial, and pastoral. But I just want to hit those highlights, because we need to move on to what he's actually saying. It's representational. Notice that the high priest was selected by God from the people to represent the people. Now, in a sense, Jesus came up from among people. He took on flesh, became human. He, too, represents us. So in the good fashion of the high priest of the Old Testament, he represents us. Now, the difference here is that in the Old Testament, we're told, and you can go back in Leviticus and other passages and read this, but before the high priest could offer a sacrifice for the people on the altar, guess what? He had to offer one for himself. And that's because the high priest, too, was human and sinful. 
So he had to make himself ceremonially clean before God before he could take on this role. So he had to offer a sacrifice. The fascinating thing about Jesus is instead of Jesus offering a sacrifice to make his standing perfect before God, he offered himself as a sacrifice because he already was perfect before God. So what a great contrast that is. But in the, in the role of high priest, Jesus is one. Oh, he offered sacrifice, all right. It was himself, not just an animal on the altar. And then the high priest gave gifts and sacrifices. Sometimes people would give gifts to the high priest. And they would give gifts, uh, sometimes monetary, uh, other things, and of course, animals. But the gifts and the sacrifices were offered by the high priest. Jesus' entire life was sacrificial. And I want you to think what that means. If, if you were to think about your own life, and someone wanted to um, maybe give some, some kind of a memorial about who you were as a person, or you can think, and I saw this once on a headstone, it's been once, this person was sacrificial. So what, what does that mean for each one of us? Jesus' whole ministry, his whole life was sacrificial. So can I say that of myself? Because I'm trying to follow Jesus as a disciple. And then, I love this. And this is not by mistake. I, I just love the way the Bible is intentional. Look at verse 2. The high priest is able to deal gently with those who are ignorant and are going astray, since he himself is subject to mm. We talked about last week, Jesus experiencing inhumanity, in his humanity, uh, what those weaknesses would look like. Now, he didn't give in to them, but he experienced what those some of those human weaknesses are. And he says here that the high priest is able to deal gently with them. It's a pastoral hand. Um, I want to give a personal illustration because I've had an insight into this that years ago I didn't have. In my role at the school where I work and teach all the time, um, I'm the chaplain of our school. And a couple of times the president has called me and said, I want you to call this person, work with them because they were either mad or they were upset with the school, or they had something else really bad going on. And he and President, you have that pastoral hand that is necessary to help them deal with this. I thought, oh, okay. He said, I'm too much of a got to get it done person. I don't need to be the one talking to this person. <laughs> what I discovered is that an insight into Jesus. For Jesus, the high priest was supposed to, that because he was human, and probably a lot of times he didn't do it right. But for Jesus to deal gently with us in our human weaknesses, and we're isn't it amazing that, that when we think of Jesus in our life, when we make a mistake, when we blow it, he's able to help us pick up the pieces, and he deals gently. That's a little bit different idea I had when I was younger growing up. I thought, oh boy, one wrong step and a lightning bolt from heaven. Here it comes. And 
How are we going to get struck dead? Well, the writer here has a fascinating perspective for us to think about. That Jesus himself, functioning as our great high priest, he deals gently with us. Aren't you glad? I mean, think about how we all function. When you make a mistake and you blow it, you hope that everybody around you will give you a little bit of grace. Have you ever been there? Well, we feel like that's a blessing. The spot gives us grace more than what we know we deserve. Jesus deals gently with it emphasizes enough. Because as we go through the rest of this paragraph, it's going to help us understand Jesus' role. Here we are, human beings. The sacrifices, he says, are offered for the people. Jesus offered himself as the gift for us. Now, you probably have had a lot of gifts in your lifetime, but it's rare for a person to walk up to you and say, uh, I want you to consider me as the gift for your life. Now, the closest you get to that is with the spouse that you marry. <laughs> and and, and at, the, at the wedding ceremony, that's actually what's being said. My life is a gift for you. Well, we understand that. Oh, well, think about when children come in and their grandchildren, we see that new life. It's a precious little gift. And all the pictures that we take and all the fun things we do with these little ones, we understand that they're a gift. Jesus offered himself as a gift to each one of us. Now, the thing that I love about this is that the writer is going to make a strong point and he's going to do it five ways, just within this little paragraph, talking about how Jesus took on this role. He wasn't bribed into this role. He didn't happen to stumble into the role of high priest, our Savior. Um, if he didn't get it through his family line, genealogically. Listen to what the writer says. First, he was selected from among the people by God. God selected him. Not only that, he was appointed by God. And it says no one takes his honor and glory on himself. Jesus didn't. And he gives the example of Aaron in the Old Testament. God appointed Aaron to work with Moses. And then he's designated by God after the order of Melchizedek. Wait till a little bit later, we get to bring up this guy named Melchizedek. Interesting, mysterious figure. <laughs> and we're going to, get to talk about him later and how he relates to who Jesus is. Okay? But Jesus is appointed in this role. Again, it's not by accident. Uh, <clears throat> it won't be long. We're going to be thinking about Easter. Resurrection is what everybody talks about. The resurrection. The resurrection is the foundation of our creation. Because Jesus was appointed in the roles that he was, the resurrection lends credibility to everything he did. So that when we look back, his being a gift, his being sacrificial, his being appointed by God for this role, his being our intercessor, our mediator, all of that is on the foundation of the resurrection. And then he moves into Jesus' earthly life. And actually, he's not going to talk about Jesus' earthly life, you know, in a broad sweeping brush. He's going to specifically talk about Jesus' earthly prayer life. Oh, 
his prayer life. It was characterized by prayers, and I want you to look at the characterization, that these prayers, first of all, calls them prayers and petitions, they're with loud cries and tears to the one who could save him from death. Now, probably what comes to mind first is his presence in the Garden of Gethsemane. With loud cries and tears, he didn't want to go through this. He appealed to the Father. Um, I'm going to assume also that because the writer of Hebrews doesn't directly say that this is what happened in Gethsemane, I want to suppose there were other times during Jesus' earthly life when he had prayers and petitions with loud cry. I think Jesus, from what insight I get into the Gospels, I think Jesus had a, a vibrant, agonizing prayer life. I, he had the weight of the world in his shoulders. He had to deal with his disciples. He had to deal with the crowds. Everything that Jesus said, I think there was a lot of his prayer life that was filled with cries, loud cries, and tears. Okay? But notice it says, he prayed to the one who could save him from death. Now, it's interesting that he says that broadly and doesn't say God the Father, but he's referring to God that he could save him, and he says that he was heard. Well, in what sense was he heard? Because it looks to me like he wasn't heard because he went to the cross. Well, God hears, and we need, we need to hear this. God hears our fervent cries, our prayers and tears. He understands. He knows. He is there present. But God has a bigger picture in mind. And it may be that my, you know, loud cries and tears filled with my prayers, what I am desiring so much, though as agonizing as it is, it may not, if it were to come to pass, it may not be fulfilling the greater purposes of God. So God heard him. God could have saved him from death. No. God had a greater point. There's a part of us that wonders, I wonder Wonder where the world would be today if Jesus, somewhere toward the end, said, You know what? Forget this cross thing. I'm going back to heaven. <laughs> you ever thought about that? Well, the mind can't conceive of that because we can't even conceive of reality in history other than the way it was because Jesus was the Son of God. Now, the writer's going to go on and talk about something that's really crucial here. I don't want us to pass over this description. He was heard. It says he was heard because of his reverent world. So God didn't spare Jesus the agony of Gethsemane because at the end of his prayer, what did Jesus say? Not my will. That is his reverent submission. And again, I suspect in his rest of his ministry life, there were many other occasions where in his prayer life, Jesus exhibited reverent submission. He had this attitude of heart. This word that is translated reverent submission is, is a fascinating word. I'm, I'm always fascinated by uh, where we can find certain words are used uh, in contemporary literature that gives you illustration. This word reverent submission 
has, has been found uh, to refer once to a person, and I want you to think about this, who is carrying a priceless Persian vase across the room. Now, what if I were to hand to you a priceless Persian vase, and I said, now this vase has just been estimated to be worth $1 million. <laughs> and I want you to take it to the other side of the room. How, how, would you, how would you carry that priceless Persian vase? Would you walk back there just kind of juggling in the air? I doubt it. <laughs> you, you would be taking it, cradling it, making sure that you valued what it was worth, and you got it over there. So Jesus' attitude of reverence submission meant that he understood the value of God's plan. He understood the value of his place in that plan. He knew that it was priceless. In Hebrews 12, 28, this reverence comes up again. This is a fascinating. And because in Hebrews 12, it's going to talk about the nature of the kingdom. Therefore, since we receive a kingdom which cannot be shaken, and, and he's, he's uh, making an interesting parallel uh, to the mountain uh, where there was uh, lightning and fire and smoke. And when uh, Moses went up to get the Ten Commandments, the mountain was shaking. He said, well, we've got a kingdom that cannot be shaken. Let us show gratitude by which we may offer to God an acceptable service with reverence and awe. This same kind of reverence that Jesus exhibited in his prayer life toward God is the same kind of reverence that we exhibit in our service to God. That's what makes it acceptable. My attitude, my motive, I want it to be with reverence and awe. Then it says he learned obedience. It's the idea that he was enclosed and encircled and immersed in the experience of obedience. Obedience is reverence, submission, and action. Uh, this morning we we're talking in class about the spirit that, that by one spirit we're baptized into one body. Do you realize that one of the neat things, and we didn't get to talk about this, one of the neat things about baptism is that it is a physical, visual picture of submission. Think about that. You're allowing someone else to baptize you. And, and I, that never really connected with me until when we were up in Michigan working with the church. One of the elders of the church came back from vacation, and he had been in Nashville visiting his grandson. And his grandson was a, was a teenager, around 12, 13, somewhere around there. He said, he said, oh, he said, he said, I got back from vacation baptizing my granddaughter and my grandson. He said, oh, man. He said, my granddaughter was a joy. He goes, now my grandson's a rascal. <laughs> <laughs> and he said, you know, when I put him down to mercy in baptism, I could have I kept him there. But he said, no, I love him too. So, And I thought, that's when it dawned on me. Oh, my. Baptism is such a submissive act because we're placing our life in the hands of another person when they baptize us, assuming they're going to raise us back up. Now, historically, this is a real problem. You know why? In the 16th century, from 1525 to 1575, so about 50 years there, 
that over in Europe, the Anabaptist movement began. It was because there were people who began not to believe that infant baptism was so, so tied to the state. So it was like infant baptism, citizenship, and the state. Uh, there were people, uh, Martin Luther, uh, Zwingli, there were others who began saying, no, baptism, when you read through the New Testament, looks like it's for adult believers. Well, when the officials got wind of this movement, adult believers being baptized, when the civil authorities found them, they took them down to the river and baptized them the second time permanently. That's why they were called Anabaptists, second baptism. So if you were caught in Europe during that time as, as one of these new believers, you were baptized permanently. But see, this whole idea of reverence, submission, Jesus learned obedience. I've often wondered what was the specifics of all of that obedience. Author doesn't go into detail, but it's kind of thing that make a, a great discussion around the table with a cup of coffee. Where the, what, did, what do you think Jesus learned? What were some of his acts of obedience? What did he do? What did he embody and what examples did he show his disciples? Because remember, they're with him every day. For three and a half years. So they're watching Jesus be obedient to the Father. And then he is the source of our salvation. Oh, look at that. Designated by God to be the high priest because he became the source of eternal salvation for all who will faith. Uh, just recently, uh, I read a, about a book that, that was published, and there's a Christian writer, and I think the book is something like that. I gotta go back and find it again. But I think the title of the book is called The Recovery of Obedience. <laughs> that for too long, for too many years, Christianity in America has focused on entertainment, glitz and glamour, fun, you know, all kinds of things. And the author of this book says, whatever happened to obedience? I love this idea, the recovery of obedience. The reason it's so important is because Look how central it was in the life of Jesus that with the heart of reverent submission, we become obedient people. And, and it goes along with the beautiful hymn that we, that we have known about all our life and we sing trust and obey. When I think of trust and obey, think of how Jesus trusted God to fulfill this whole plan and Jesus obeyed the will of God. Both of those are crucial. Jesus' ministry. Oh, this is such a neat paragraph. He is designated by God to be high priest in the order of this eternal salvation. There is no salvation. Christians in the world stage today are being tagged as individuals who are not tolerant of others. That because we say there's one way to heaven, that's intolerant. Well, think about it. If Jesus walked away the cross and he did it for me, um, I'm willing to grab a hold of his exclusive claim that there's only one way to follow. Nobody else has claimed that they died for me, so I'm not going that direction. <laughs> Jesus had, see, this, uh, I want you to be thinking about this too as Easter, as we anticipate Easter. There's so many things about Jesus that are unique that no other person on the world stage through the centuries can claim what Jesus did. Not only that, to accomplish what he did. 
The uniqueness of Jesus comes out real strong in the whole book of Hebrews. In this particular paragraph this morning, we see that the purpose of this priesthood is to be representational, presentational, sacrificial, pastoral, that he offered himself.